What exactly is the treatment here going to be, then? Oh, it's quite simple, really. We're just going to show you some films. You mean like going to the pictures? Something like that. Welcome to South London Hardcore. There's me, that is Jack Mack. My Drew, that is Steve Walsh. And the other galosh you'll be saluting is our special guest. He's enterprising, aggressive, outgoing, bold, vicious. Midnight Video's Jim Hall. Yeah, non-smoker with a good sense of humour. <laughs> should be Midnight Viddy. Yeah, Viddy well, yes. <laughs> this week we're going to be talking about Thamesmead on screen, the uh, concrete town in uh, south-east London, by the river. Where I was taken to, brothers, was like no cine I ever vided before. As both superpower TV series Misfits, Peter Sellers' vehicle The Optimists of Nine Elms, Stanley Kubrick's ultra-violent dystopian masterpiece A Clockwork Orange, and homantic comedy Beautiful Thing. Homantic? He's uh, yeah. kind of words. It's, it's a homcom. It? <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, great. I like it. Yeah. I once before tried to come up with... Um, tried to come out. <laughs> unsuccessfully so I had to come up with a name uh, come up with a genre name you know because say like if you worked for the NME in the 80s you would, that was most of your job was coming up with scene names yeah. exactly and I was going for transploitation right <laughs> so film sets in South London that were like exploitation films but it turned out transploitation with transvestites yeah transsexual exploitation films it already oh. exists so I'm going to homcom is that mine yeah I'll, I'll let you have it will you <laughs> <laughs> there will be people, Steve, who've never heard of Thamesmead listening. It's but, not a particularly uh, prominent or well-known part of London. It's, it is like a, a forgotten corner, isn't it? Yeah, but it is notable. I lived there. Of course, yeah, yeah it's I where mean, Steve that's... was conceived. <laughs> I don't know how true that is. Conceiving. I don't think that's true. And I'm not but prepared it's... to ask parents to confirm this what This is a research and come back on the next show, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, I was just wondering, <laughs> could you pinpoint the moment in which uh, an egg was fertilised <laughs> <laughs> to uh, produce me? Click. You were, uh, well, you, surely you were in your uh, father's yard, your blockers. <laughs> You're <laughs> running with this now. Your balls. Yeah. Running around his yard balls. Is it your balls? Yeah. Great balls you once. Balls you walsh. So was it 1968? Uh, they built this new town on uh, what was formerly Swampland, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah. yeah. Wild horses, maybe, were running around there, previously owned by the uh, Woolwich Arsenal. Or is this just conjecture? I like the idea of wild horses running around now. Can't. What was that to do with the barracks? I don't know. Cavalry officers. Uh, yeah, you would have had wild the horses there in like 1967, no, would no. you? <laughs> I don't think cavalry officers were being uh, trained uh, in Woolwich in the 60s. I like to think they were. In our twinning episode recently, we uh, found that uh, the area was twinned with was it, uh, Langenhagen, which was the place that had... Yeah, I believe so, yeah. Yeah, Langenhagen. Which, uh, and the reason for twinning, uh, part of the reason was the fact that they were both undertaking uh, the reclamation of Swampland to build new social housing after the war. Uh, and in Thamesmead, obviously given the time, this took the form of the brutalist structures... That are almost synonymous, I think, with 
a lot of what we think of as the classic look of uh, housing estates at the time. Which are, you know, as we talked about on our, our previous episode, uh, Suburb Estates on screen, uh, you know, it's ideal for filming, isn't it? You've got these uh, large lumps, which provide uh, great backdrops, solid, you know, great for lighting, framing things. It's a dream for any sort of uh, director. Yeah, director. and used in the four uh, pieces uh, we're going to talk about, used in very different ways. Oh, absolutely, but yeah. We'll come, come to that yeah. in time. I think the idea, Steve, is that uh, it was going to be some kind of social utopia. The well, architects, the people who were definitely never going to live there, came up with <laughs> ideas and won awards and were like, this is going to be fine. Well, in the same way as uh, the Haygate and Ellsbury in, in uh, Southwark, when these things are built, no one thought, oh, you know, these uh, walkways will provide perfect rat runs for uh, criminals. Everyone just thought, oh, this would be great. It'd be elevated and, you know, access. No one... No, no architect is uh, lunatic enough to design things with the idea that this is going to degenerate into uh, a public you know, toilet. Yeah, essentially, <laughs> and you know the problem. The problem with these places is the scale they're built on is dependent on. You know, the, I think the key thing is is dependent on the lifts working. And once the lifts go, rather than it being this wonderful place to live, you're thirty floors up and you've got a pram and you haven't got a lift. It's a nightmare. So you know, it's just. Very basically, that where if you look at it, you know, and as I said, we'll cover this in the films we look at when when it was first posited and put forward, people were clamouring to get onto it, weren't they? Yeah, the guy, um, the first guy who moved in uh, came from Peckham, so I don't know if that was a great swap, personally. Well, the thing is, you know, from talking to my mum, uh, who was living in the area at the time, you know, it was a case of there were you know, and, it, and people again look back on it now and go, oh, they knocked down such beautiful houses to make space for these. But in those beautiful houses, you had families living in rooms, you had outdoor toilets, you had you know, yeah. oh yeah, I mean that's they were beautiful houses. Well, it was mostly weren't... wasteland, wasn't it? So there's not so much. I yeah, mean, obviously with yeah, other yeah, places, yeah, there yeah, are no. it was a case where you're knocking things down and building up. Yeah, say, but, maybe but in this Ellsbury. case as well, in terms of what people were trading for. They were trading for uh, living in, in tenements. They were living in places that, even if they were structurally sound, were just not designed to hold the number of people that are living in them. So suddenly, if you're a family, you rather than living in two two rooms and sharing a bathroom and kitchen facilities with four other families, uh, you know, in what's supposed to be a three bed house, suddenly, you know, you've got a flat with you know separate bedrooms, you know, running water in two rooms. Uh, a toilet that isn't dependent on there being a thunderstorm for whoever you actually fancy going out for, uh, you know. A bathtub? Yeah, exa- exactly, yeah, a bath. With, with, with coal in it. <laughs> mm. If you want. I mean, uh, so, But yeah, this is the thing. At the time, it, no one moved into these things thinking this is going to be horrible. Everyone thought it was going to be wonderful. And I'm sure it was for the first few years. They ran out of money. Um, they were going to build a bridge over the river. And it is a bit strange how you don't really have any bridges uh, down that end, do you? Isolated. It is a bit, isn't it? Yeah. But again, that echoes the sort of plans for Southwark as well, where obviously the North Peckham, the Ellsbury and the Haygate were supposed to be linked by these uh, walkways. And again, you know, if you run out of money, the things you're going to leave out is the, you know, if you've got access, giving people alternative routes of access is not a necessity, is it? You're keen on uh, topology. Is that the word, Steve? Uh, Jim? I don't know. Topology? Topology? Topology, yeah. Yeah. So, the shape of no the uh, where names names of places come from toponymy etymology isn't it where names come no from? that's words though okay. isn't the toponymy 
Maybe it's not. Maybe I've just got it wrong. Yeah, we'll just cut that out. And it doesn't matter. <laughs> it's fine. The name Thamesmead, Steve. Where did we get it from? That's fine. You don't know? No. It was a competition and a little girl won with Thamesmead. It was a oh, competition. Right. What do you want to call this uh, new utopia? What does mead mean? Be short for meadow, I imagine. Thames Meadow, perfect, yeah. isn't it? Ah, okay. And I guess it would have been, not a meadow, because it was Swampland, but yeah, you're going to call it Thames Swamp, are you? Oh, it's not mead like the thing that the gods in Asgard would be drinking <laughs> from a big horn. What is that? Some kind mead. of booze? Mead. mead. It's like yeah. wine. The, it's, the, uh, it's like ambrosia. It's the drink mm. of the gods. Custard. <laughs> the custard of the gods. Well, that's the thing. I always assumed uh, Thames Mead was just the original name for the area. Because you've got things like... Um, you know, the Runny Mead Estate, you've got these very sort of uh, rural sounding names. And as I say, the fact that it was essentially... You've been manipulated, Steve, by... Uh, I fell for it, haven't I? Designers, haven't you? Well, no, I've, I've fallen for uh, a very clever naming by an eight-year-old girl, but no problem with that. I've pulled out um, a piece from ChristopherFowler.co.uk. Do you know him? He's a writer? He's a uh, like horror fantasy writer. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, That's yeah. mostly what he does. He's also got a blog, right, where he makes sweeping generalisations about areas he's never been to. <laughs> now, he said he'd been there, but... Right. This <laughs> has he got his own South London podcast? Probably. He's been on Here Be Angels four times, right. and therefore right. is our enemy. <laughs> some of this is this will get ridiculous, right? But he says uh, some of this. It starts off true, right? Thamesmead's foundations proved inadequate, and it promptly started sinking back into the marsh, right? I don't know. They they had to build everything sort of above ground level, which is you know why it looks how it does. Homes cracked in half. Waters flooded the alleys. The air was always damp. And London's roughest families were moved in en masse. Right, and this is... What he says next is kind of the key thing that you kind of hear about it. Cut off by the river on one side and the motorway on the other. Nobody ever went there. Why would they? Without social interaction, the, inhabit- the inhabitants were left to create their own social rules. Right. So he's, <laughs> Hello. Uh, he thinks he's like Escape from New York. I was going to say, yes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it's funny enough, someone in the comments suggested that, uh, Escape from New York rem- uh, remake where Tony Blair, this is our old pieces, Tony Blair <laughs> crashes a plane into Tennessee. <laughs> I mean, uh, as I say, I haven't been to Thamesmead since I was a child. I can never imagine going there. It's, it's in the same way we talked about Balham. There's nothing in Thamesmead that you sort of go, I have to go there. I don't have friends. I don't have family. No, but, yeah, but this is the extreme end. There is You'd only go there to see film and locations. Yeah. But I don't think uh, it's become uh, a feral, lawless place. No, there was. He got absolutely slaughtered in the comments, Good. and most of it was people saying that they feel completely safe. They walk around at night. Yeah, and other people saying that parts of it are picturesque. Well, this is, uh, and again, we'll come to this when we talk about things in general. I think there's there's some uh, some places. It, it's all how you present it, isn't it? You can present it as a hellhole. You can present it as a place that looks uh, gorgeous. I think. I'd never heard of Thamesmead, right, till I was, uh, I think I was about 17, 18, and there was a family at the church I went to, and um, they came from, I guess, Nigeria, I think, and all of them had Jesu in their name, right, to Jesu, Jesaloba, Jesu Tafumi, like G-E-S-U, G-E-S-U, J-E-S-U, like Jesus, mm-hmm. right, they just made up the names, and um, they'd kind of, I don't know where they'd lived previously, but they had moved a couple of times, right? Nazareth. Are you sure an eight-year-old girl hadn't won a competition to name them? <laughs> <laughs> Quite possibly. Um, so one one day at this meeting, uh, where you kind of get up and talk, give thanks to God for what he's done for you over the year, right, this guy, the father got up, right, and he always, he didn't say much, right, but always be when he spoke, he kind of spoke for a long time and everyone was kind of silent. 
and he he talked about uh, like kind of moving to Camberwell, and uh, I can't. But his story kind of was going on and on and on, and he basically it ended with the line, you know, and I took my shoes off in that place, and I said, I am home. And then about a month later, they moved to Thamesmead. So, <laughs> well, Thamesmead has the oldest. Uh, Girl was calling that. How would you describe the show? How would you describe Misfits to people who hadn't seen it? You know what? The synopsis always sounds crap. I hadn't watched Misfits until we had to for the show. Because the way you said had to is already to. telling you. Telling well, because it's one of those things where uh, it's very. When you talk to people who like Misfits, they love Misfits, and there's no middle ground. People are all over the show. But You're for not me, the type of person I would normally talk to. No, yeah. But I, I had the same feeling about Misfits as I did about Heroes. That you know, it's okay if Is you've there never. Else on? <laughs> it's alright if you've never read or watched anything to do with like comics or powers before. But if you have, it's just very bland, and it's, you've seen it. You, you, you basically just ticking boxes again. You got that from there, and I mean. Jim, I'm sure. Did you ever watch Heroes? Yes, I watched all of the first series, and I think I started the second. But uh, and then you realised it was a massive waste of time. Well, even by the end of the first series, I had doubts. But uh, when I only to... watched the first episode, I okay. don't think I even finished it. And then sometimes <laughs> you watch something, you're like, "This is never going to be good." I was intrigued, mainly to see, and the same thing with Misfits. My main sort of interest was how, what powers they're going to have, and how are they going to represent mm. it on screen as a piece. I, I thought it was a terrible idea for a show. I'm, having watched it, I, I, you know, I'm happy to revise that. It's better than I thought it was going to be. But I had no interest uh, in watching it. I mean, the, you know, the basic premise is you have a group of kids that are doing community service because they've got asbos. Uh, I ain't got an asbo. There's a storm, a mysterious storm. Uh, there's a lightning strike. And eventually the kids realise... They all and, do some slow-mo in front of a blue screen. Yeah. And, then, and then Steve... Uh, over the next sort of episode and a half, their powers emerge one by one. They're not too sure about telling each other, in a, and one of them isn't sure if he's even got a power. Um, the power that their parole officer, parole officer, is that what you call him? Yeah, I think that's what they call yeah. him in the first episode. Um, gets is that he basically goes nuts, doesn't he? He wears contact lenses <laughs> <laughs> and flips out. Um, yeah, and then for the rest of the season, indeed the rest of the seasons, it's basically, it, it goes quite quickly from their initial sort of, it, it's the classic thing of, of when uh, people get powers in these shows, they acclimatise very quickly, don't they? <laughs> they don't sort of agonise too long about it. Um, and then it becomes very much status quo, and then it becomes very much story of the week. Villain of the week, in it? Yeah, or, you know, villain of the power week. Power of the week, basically. Yeah. And there's slight arcs to the uh, seasons, but I mean... Yeah. It's not story-wise. It's there's nothing really fresh there. As I say, the fun thing is what powers are going to turn up. How are they going to deal with them? And I think that I think the appeal for a lot of people with Misfits is the fact that it's quite irreverent. You've got this. It's very sort of tongue-in-cheek. It's uh, you know it's kids and you know very sort of uh, it's street kids. So they're quite sort of uh, unforgiving to one another as well, which is always good fun. Yeah, I mean, you lent me the disc of this, I think. Where did this come from, Lee? Well, Jack is my sister's DVD. Can I have right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she, she's back from America. She's yeah. looking for that. <laughs> she's got two copies of season one. That's how much she likes it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, going back to what you said about Heroes, I mean, that was, uh, yeah, we're big comic fans. Yeah. To watch Heroes, the TV show, where it looks like they've taken the ideas from comics, but then tried to make them, they haven't got silly outfits, they yeah. haven't got all that science fiction mm, kind absolutely. of background, they've yeah. set it in something that's recognisably the real world. And you do stop and think, well, what was the point of doing it then? Yeah. And this even more so, because this is obviously based more on heroes, I think, than the comics, or, I don't know, X-Men was a big franchise at this, when was it, 2009 it started? Yeah, yeah. 
So I think Heroes was definitely around then. Yeah. Um, but it's yeah, always more a... fun to teenagers, isn't it? Because uh, you've got the sort of that's what Ronnie Wood says. <laughs> <laughs> but you've got the natural sort of angst, isn't it? You know, and a lot of uh, the powers sort of tie into very, you know, Simon's thing about going invisible. They, they, it always fascinates me. There is a sort of there's a, a very common trope in comics where you have either the Aladdin effect or the inverse Aladdin effect, where the powers emerge and it's a sort of subliminal. Or even quite obvious wish fulfillment, or their greatest fear. Yeah, it was like Peter Parker who was terrified of spiders, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> the next one, bloody Spider-Man! Daredevil, he had such good vision, didn't he? Before he, was great. he went blind. Uh, and with this, it's it's almost like there's a form of wish fulfillment. It's a form of torture as well, isn't it? It's their greatest fears and their greatest hopes together. So, like Simon worries about being insignificant, so he becomes visible, but it means that he doesn't get bullied. So yeah. it sort of works both ways. Uh, Alicia... And he was ignored to begin with, so yeah, it's kind of... Yeah, yeah, a... it sort of keys into his fear, but also it means he can't be attacked. Alicia, you know, wants people des- to desire her, but the, the desire can become overpowering and it goes out of control. So, yeah, it's, it, you know, that was quite interesting. I thought, as I say, it was interesting for me in terms of how they portray the powers. Like, Alicia's power, which is based on if someone touches her, they become... Uh, oh. out of control in terms of their lust for her. It's such an easy thing to do, isn't it, in terms of uh, representing it on screen. You just sort of... It's a performance. Yeah, it's well, not that, an effect. You might even say that certainly out of the the misfits, um, rather than the people that, you know, the guests that turn up every week, that's probably the most original power they do, isn't it? Yeah. Are you going to pull out some... No. Uh, comics that well, the thing is... Do you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, no, know, going in, compared to Guy and Invisible. Yeah. Yeah, or flying or super strength. Yeah, you're absolutely right, yeah. And I thought that, yeah, that was the thing. It was quite interesting, you know, and you, you talked about it. I don't know if, if it's in the one, the, the guy who controlled milk? No, I've not seen that. Okay, one. Yeah. but that's quite an interesting one. And it is, yeah, they uh, do a lot of... there. They, um, that's, that's in the Christmas special that comes right. between season two and three. But there's a guy and he's, you know, lactokinesis is his power. Yeah, <laughs> which is great, isn't it? That's he's just thing. doing all these tricks with milk. But they do actually, it's one of the better ones. Um because they can't they go quite far with it where you know as it goes on he's quite a sinister character and as it goes on he starts killing people by sort of making them regurgitate Greek yogurt they ate earlier in the day yeah and did he do anything them. with pregnant women's breasts or <laughs> they, they didn't but he could have done quite easily yeah, it would have been yeah. Yeah. the fact that that's popped into my head as soon as <laughs> yeah. there's so much about misfits but so much uh, more about Jim Paul but Jim no, podcast having... is midnight video by the way. <laughs> it's full of filth like that <laughs> Uh, but no, the, having watched the episodes um, recently, that did strike me as a sort of thing they do, which is to take the superpowers and try and do something quite um, yeah, irreverent or yeah. just filthy, really, yeah. with it. Because, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I found this really pretty charmless. I mean, I know there's the idea, usually in comics, of teenagers having the powers because it's easy to relate to for the readers. But usually you would, you'd vary the characters, so there would be the kind of rebellious mm. ones. Then there'd be ones like Simon and this, who's... Um, a little bit, a bit more sensitive, very, yeah, yeah. yeah, and you yeah. do a variation, but all of them were such horrible characters. To begin with. <laughs> well, I think that was episode, part of I just the... thought I wouldn't care if you all got uh, shooted by a combine it? harvester in the next yeah. few minutes. However, have you seen season three then? No, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's that that, combo. that does sort of play in its favour in a way because without spoiling anything for anyone, you know, characters do die. And it's quite good because it does mean... It, it does sort of put things up for grabs. You do get the feeling no one's safe. None of mm. these characters are sort of like... They, they're the, 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 the keystones of the series and they yeah. have to stay alive. So well, it's the advantage with the team. But yeah, it kind yeah. Of, you're probably too young to remember this. But when I was a kid, there was a show on IT, children's ITV, uh, Tomorrow People, which was very much... Oh, I've seen it on... They did yeah. a clip on Charlie Brooker. 
yeah, yeah probably the seventies one, it, which again never. was yeah teenagers getting the powers. But I think that was always linked in to when you go when you're a teenager in real life and puberty comes along, weird things seem to be happening to you. And I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer probably played on that yeah, as well. Absolutely. And I think this was possibly trying to do that, but not, not really working for me. I'd, I'd like to come back to Buffy in a moment. Yeah, so don't let me forget. But um, I think the thing is, though, the fact that they're all doing community service kind mm. of, it almost says, look, these are, they are, they're not great guys. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It kind of yeah. sets up but from that... the start. It's not, if say it was like a set in a school or whatever, yeah. Yeah. presumably you'd have kind of a, a kind of spectrum of, yeah. you know, not that everyone doing community service is an appalling human being, but they kind of, you know. That's, yeah, it doesn't, already... it doesn't set you up to be sympathetic. I'd, I'd hope that's already alienated a lot of the, the audience, the target yeah. audience. If they're mm. actually in an Asbo situation, even yeah. though some of them think they've been given a hard, you know, yeah. uh, given a hard what? Hard time. Because mm. <laughs> right. what the, the, there's the, the, there's the black boy who's kind of an athlete and he thinks, yeah, he's, he's a sprinter. Yeah, yeah. He's a sprinter who, um, has had his career cut short because of, of some foolishness. Drug. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. But yeah, um, having said they were charmless actually by the last episode of the first series, uh, is it Nathan, the Irish guy in it? Yeah. It was so obnoxious that the others yeah. actually look yeah. very good in comparison. I started to sort of warm to that. And the thing more. is, having not watched it at the time, but seeing things online where people on Twitter and Facebook have talked mm. about it, and not just talking to people, they go, oh, this, there's this Irish fella, he's mm. brilliant. Yeah, and I watched it. went to see him in a play, she liked him so much. Yeah, people just love this guy. And uh, I was watching, and I was like, oh, he is, you know, there were so many uh, moments and scenes that were reliant as a punchline or an out for the scene with him just pretending to shag something. Just him just like <laughs> yeah. him bumming a drinks machine or something. And you're like, all oh, right, enough with that. How do you know which orifice he was going for? <laughs> he told us oh, in I a lot see. of detail. Yeah. Now, and, you know, uh, with, with, well, it's not spoiling, is it? Let's, let's talk about it. Okay. Yeah, it's fine. Yeah. Um, he leaves and gets replaced uh, by Woody from uh, This Is England. And suddenly, it's a much better series. I enjoyed nah, it so much. No? No, nah, I thought season oh. three was uh, slightly worse. And the, the, but I like him so much. I, th- I like him as an actor. Yeah. I thought he was brilliant in This Is England. It's tremendous, isn't it? Yeah. But it just... I don't find it funny. This is the, the, not... the, One of the problems is is the characters are just not that good. Yeah. Like, you know, the Robert Sheehan character is annoying. Um, the mixed race girl... Alicia. Yeah, no, I'm not going to give them names, Steve. <laughs> Like that again. That's just, it's just so hollow. There's just nothing to it. No. Same with like the the sprinter. There's nothing. You know the um, with my aspirations to make films, Steve. I shouldn't really bad mouth actors, right? But <laughs> Simon, right? Barry, he's horrible in it, isn't he? And he was in um, the uh, what's the Wild Bill? You know the uh, Dexter Fletcher's director. Uh, I haven't Austria. seen it. I've not seen it, but just Dexter no. Fletcher has that. I, re- I really like Dexter Fletcher as an Dexter actor, Fletcher, but it's not, not, not very good at all. No. And he's in that, and he's doing like a, yeah, safe, yeah, you got to like, give me some bum and some weed or whatever. And uh, and he's really bad in that as well. I imagine, yeah. But also the, the shorthand with him that they just combed his hair forward like it was in Franz Ferdinand. So yeah, yeah, he told yeah. you everything you need to know about him. Yeah. And... The, um, and the, uh, the girl in it, the, the girl, who's meant the to be a, you know, quote unquote chav, yeah. it's just Little Britain, isn't it? I'm yeah. not going to go even that far. She's like a the voice was like Victoria Wood, <laughs> but I read last night she's um, she's been in trouble for racially yeah, she, aggravated assault. She yeah. won't be in the next season. She's and apparently, it's nothing to do with the racially aggravated assault. We can't mm. have helped, can it? Not going to uh, you know indeed. So we'll never get yeah, to see her the... reading a dog's mind again. <laughs> <laughs> we'll never get to see her uh, having uh, a short-lived love over gorilla. But yeah, this it just looked like it was the, the the gimmick was giving superpowers to these characters who are sort of 
not very pleasant to begin with. But that it, it meant to me there was no drama to it. There was no reason I wanted to tune in and yeah, absolutely. You know, there's no one to root for. Is there? There's not yeah. much, no there. There's no drama in it. But, and like I said, it's not funny either. Like no. it's I don't I don't particularly like shows that are meant to be all clever dialogue. Yeah, and like sometimes yes, but most of the time, you know, yeah, someone's just, just trading witty. Yeah, well. exactly. People just sitting there reading out jokes. Yeah, not for me, thanks. Yeah, it's not dialogue, is it? But I had uh, one issue which probably wouldn't have occurred to a lot of people, but it started to bother me, and it probably says more about me than anyone else or the show. But uh, with the sex scenes, mm. some of the women bras, some of the women no bras, <laughs> and I was just, and it just started to bother me. I was like, okay, so she's got a clause in her contract where she doesn't do yeah. topless uh, stuff. Yeah, I was that gonna... was your X-ray vision power. <laughs> <laughs> but I was just, and I, it just started to bother me as soon as the sex scenes. I was like, oh, I wonder if it's going to be. Oh no, she keeps a bra on. And um, I was, it just it got to a point where I was like, and it bothers me in films generally where women keep their bra on. It bothers you when women keep their bras on. While they're having uh, sex, you're I'm like, the wrong films, surely if you're having sex, yeah. you take your bra off. But then, interestingly, only this week, um, there's a new comic out by a woman called uh, Gabrielle Bell called Voyeurs, uh, which is a diary comic. And you went she, straight to that, since I came <laughs> She tells a story about just being around a friend's house and uh, her friends realise they can see a couple having sex uh, in a room across the way. And the woman's got a bra on. And the guy's like, why has she got a bra on? And the woman says, oh, uh, I read an article about it. Uh, some pe- some women find it more comfortable. So I've learned something. Maybe it's just self-conscious. Yeah. About a body. Like, I look sexier in this bra. I'm not putting no. that in. I'm taking that out. I'm not going to have me. I'll leave your bit in. If you want to <laughs> but leave, you I was going to bring this up, Jim. You're people, regular listeners of Midnight Video. Midnight Video. Midnight-video.com. At Midnight it. Video. Yeah. Will know about your sexy omelette, won't they? My sexy omelette. <laughs> like, you know, generally, if you and Phil talk about a film that is uh, kind of raunchy, you will always comment on how sexy it was, won't you? Sometimes, if, even if... if it's not a raunchy film, Jim will mention it. <laughs> Jonathan Livingston's Steve. Like. <laughs> I didn't like it, it wasn't sexy. Uh, dear. <laughs> but I, f- I would say that Misfits uh, hit the nail on the head a number of times. I thought they did it very well. Um, you know, if they, for t- if they were just aiming to titillise? T- Tittle. Yeah. Tittle. 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 Uh, scenarios so yeah, just wait. we've moved on from that haven't we really yeah like you, if I put the telly on to watch a, um, a drama series like if it's just every week you're just going to get kind of that kind of thing it's I think I'm probably I, I thought it was quite interesting just because I, as I was looking out for new powers and new ways to use powers it's no Buffy is it nah and like the whole storm thing with the hellmouth right in Buffy everyone had a kind of odd thing because there was a hellmouth underneath the town Whereas with this storm thing, you're coming out as a nerd now. You're usually quite resistant to all. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> the, you know, um, yeah, I'm a big. Bu- I was a big Buffy fan. All right. But say, for example, the guy going invisible. Like, I mean, as you said, Steve, these things have been done a million times. But when Clea Deval was in uh, Buffy, I think season two, maybe she. Uh, That's a brilliant episode, isn't it? The Invisible Girl, yeah, because yeah. like she turned invisible because no one looked at her. Yeah. Like it's, well, it's Buffy, been done. The thing, well, the thing with Buffy is Buffy was uh, probably the best example of that, certainly on television, where. It was Villain of the Week or Monster of the Week, but what Whedon did that was, you know, very clever and hadn't been done, certainly in, in television at this point, was to take, you know, classic 
uh, Teen Angst. And yeah, the, teen, the changes teen, you're yeah. going through then and they and were externalised as these of monsters. So you yeah. do a werewolf. I mean, uh, Alan Moore did a very similar thing in Swamp Thing, didn't he? Yeah, where, American Gothic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He sort of looks at the, the ills of the world through classic movie monsters, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And the key is that the characters are good in Buffy. Absolutely. And uh, it is funny. Yeah. Although they do have witticism dialogues. Yeah, they do. And the thing is, maybe I've just got tired of it. Yeah. But I do, yeah. I did. I mean, I do tend to think that Buffy was far better. Well, than this is the thing. If you've but, seen you know a I mean? better if, version and an inferior, yeah. Version, or maybe if I no watched Misfits when I was seventeen, and yeah. I hadn't seen that's the other thing. But I guess the other thing. I mean, obviously, I, I didn't go to school in America, but I imagine Buffy was never meant to be a really gritty, realistic look at school life. It was no. meant no. to be a slightly cosmetic, uh, cosmic. Yeah, it's um, called whereas, Buffy the Vampire, isn't it? Straight away, it's very sort of. Which ties in with what the whole episode's about. Thames Mead is there probably to make it look really sort of gritty, urban, mm. realistic. And yet, yeah, the way these characters talk isn't at all realistic. I thought Thames Mead looked brilliant. Yeah, I think the um, the image, uh, like the enduring image of uh, the water feature. Yeah. With, uh, you know, the lake, the man-made lake. You know, with the estate in the background, the end, just endless estate, yeah, and the, all the kids in their orange jumpsuits, yeah. Like that's a great way to start. I mean, imagine you've, you've got a good artist drawing that, and that's how a comic starts yeah. off. Yeah, brilliant. Well, the aerial shot as well that showed like the turbines on the roof. I thought mm. they, they use that a lot. They look, and also using the physicality of the estate, particularly with the whole you know mysterious man parkouring around the place. Future Simon. Um, but yeah I I thought just and in terms of just having it as a place to run around it it is exactly you know what you you know films want to use this for isn't it it's a great sort of backdrop Mm. to have but I mean this is the most recent uh, of the things we're reviewing tonight yeah Thames Mead in it is meant to be sort of a sort of urban decay kind of place isn't it rather than well it's it's interesting like we were discussing it before the show Uh, Jack was saying one of the key things about Thames Mead and Misfits is it's never named as Thames Mead. It's no, anonymous. No, it clearly place, isn't. isn't no, it? it's, yeah, actually, uh, yeah. They keep referring to the warehouse on Tipton Street, which is kind of throws yeah. you off. Well, also the fact that you've got it's interesting, you know, that you've got uh, the Kelly character who's clearly from is it Derby or? Yeah, that's the trouble. That's um, I mean, I have a big a big issue with television shows set in London that are just full of people with northern accents, like Phone Shop, right? Yeah, like it's set in Sutton, Jim. Have you ever seen it, Phone Shop? I think I saw a pilot for yeah, it. Yeah, I'm, I'm a huge terrible. fan of it. Really? Yeah, yeah, love it. Yeah, but like someone turns up, there's a Welsh guy turns up, then the next week guy from Manchester turns up, then a Scottish guy turns up. We're in Sutton. Yeah, like most of the people are going to be from Sutton. Yeah, you don't meet that many Welsh people. In and that's the like there are there's a fair. You, it's basically a TV setting isn't it yeah like yeah, it's absolutely. like very much they will never name it and central yeah. london is not 9.4 miles away <laughs> it's just it's it's misfits town isn't it yeah you've kept up with this it's been over three series and there's a fourth coming yeah it's coming out um this month yeah this month yeah i'm not sure what date but but you think the third series this is classic isn't this with buffy as well everyone says it gets terrible after the third series or something. i felt that yeah but i speak to my friend Stephen over there he was like nah four five six is what, what late buffy about. Yeah. Anyway, no, I always think... Uh, I thought season two and three for me with Buffy. But again, say, I've ones... never seen it. Since I saw it when I was 18, and I saw seven episodes a day before one of my A-levels. <laughs> that was a mistake. What grade do you get? I can't say, man, because... No, someone <laughs> might be listening who's looked at my CV and the, the, grade, <laughs> the grade is different. <laughs> and, yeah, I just thought the camera work was too showy as well. That we found it really annoying. That stupid effect where they put blur around the edges of it. It's not Instagram, do you know what I mean? It's a Channel 4 television show. <laughs> And also another thing that struck me was the music. Um, 
just it just seems... lined with like velvet underground, you know, yeah. uh, the XX. So yeah. much justice. I was yeah. thinking about that because it's obviously quite a cheaply made show. And I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll forgive it because it's obviously it's on a tight budget. And you'd think, why are you making a superpowers thing if you haven't got the budget to really show too much? Mm. I mean, do any of the characters turn out to be able to fly? No, I imagine no. that would just be too expensive. Yeah. That's why I thought no, no one's going to do yeah. that. But. So I think I have a problem with that. I like. It's, no, I didn't mind that, but yeah. I was going to say with the music because I was watching it thinking this must cost a lot to get the clearance for this, mustn't it? Well, the, I was having a chat with a chair of governors from uh, the school I work in, and I, I w- we were talking about Misfits because um, he represents someone related to the music in the show, mm-hmm. and I was just saying, oh, obviously they've got a blanket agreement with the music, haven't they? If you can just put like. You know, well, I think in the sixth episode, you've got Lady Gaga, Kraftwerk, and something because mm, the woman yeah, has got the right pop song. Yeah, turns up, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. Um, and he was like, no, they don't. In, like BBC do, they put what they want in, but they're paying for all that stuff. It's I mean, individual. Yeah, they have to I, negotiate clearance for DVD and stuff. It just... Yeah. Nine Elms is the name of a place in London, south of the river. There might have been nine trees there once, but the time we're talking about. Nine Elms didn't mean trees. It meant fog in winter. The Optimist and Nine Elms is a film from 1973. It stars Peter Sellers as a washed-up musical variety star yeah. who's living in... It's even a house. It's an odd sort of arrangement, isn't it? It looks like something... Well, the exterior looks like the back of a factory or something. Yeah. yeah. And then when you go in, it looks like he works in a Hoxton advertising agency. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a remarkable structure, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I think the first time you see him, though, he's on the street, isn't he? He spends most of his day... He's got a pram with something like a harmonium on it, because, yeah, he's busking now. Yeah. Um, with his dog. With his dog, Bella. Yep. Yeah. And they spend most of the day wandering the streets, just trying to scrape together a few pennies so he can buy a few tins to eat up in his horse from the home. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much the idea. He's yeah. a, a washed-up <clears throat> musical entertainer, uh, reduced to busking, um, who is hassled by a couple of uh, cheeky kids. Well, it's quite funny because at first uh, it's harassment, isn't it? Yeah. It, they follow him home and he's like throwing stuff at them to get them to clear off. He doesn't want them anywhere near him and they're being... Well, they're singing Sam Sam the Dirty Old Man yeah. washes his face <laughs> in a frying pan. <laughs> <laughs> if and... they were on Twitter now, they'd be trolling around. <laughs> around that same kind of thing. Yeah, it's not the sort of thing where you imagine um, they'll end up as, um, you know, a gang of friends. But they do. Else there's no film, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it would just be like, it would be what was that Clint Eastwood one? Oh, Gran Torino. Yeah, it would be like that or something. Yeah. <laughs> or uh, Harry Brown, it could be something like that. When... But the kids, yeah, they seem to, they eventually charm themselves uh, into his affections and he agrees to take them. Well, uh... he lets them hang around with him. Yeah, they sort of follow him around for a day's busking and he managed to like, incorporate them into they, a few things. They lead his dog. His dog, uh, while Peter Sellers is playing his harmonium, uh, Bella the dog goes around on its hind legs with a kind of enamel cup chained around its neck and that's where people, the crowds, put their money in. Uh, but yeah, the way the kids sort of get on side with Sellers is they lead the dog around and that yeah. seems to be it. Yeah. yeah, it was a peculiar scene because apparently that's enough for... Uh, for this friendship, this bond to emerge. <laughs> mister. Yeah, <Hey>, mister. <laughs> yeah, but... Um... Yeah, and you realise, you sort of get the backstory of the kids' family life, where 
uh, parents are working very hard. They're, the kids are left around devices a lot yeah. of the time. I mean, yeah. yeah, it taps into that 70s yeah, thing of nobody ever knowing where their kids were. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, they live in this tiny little uh, dingy flat in Nine Elms. Yeah. And uh, Thamesmead is the flats across the river from Nine Elms, so it's not, you know, an actual, you know, but the utopian housing estate is almost almost function as a... As an advert for the, uh, the people that designed it, well, it's, the, it's the promised land, isn't it? It's yeah. like if, if if everything goes well, the flats well, that's where yeah, will end yeah. up it's in very this much place. Shown as that's where they're going to go. Yeah, and when, uh, as the best the... possible outcome is, you can end up on on the Thames with estate. You you know, hopefully that's what will happen. Because when the young girl goes there, she seems knocked out by it. The fact that there are kids and they yeah. all seem really pleasant and they're walking their dogs around. Which uh, yeah, a, a major part of the plot here is that the both the kids want to get a dog. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, from Batsy Dog's home. But they've got to raise, what is it, £3.50? Yeah. Yeah. That's the whole plot, really. (laughs) (laughs) But it's interesting, like, as you say, once you see their house and you see the house that the Peter Sellers goes, you think just swapping it. Put him in that flat, yeah. he'd be fine. Him and a dog, give them that space. It is a bit steptoe, though, isn't it? Maybe you want to uh, give it. He a clear out his stuff, yeah, yeah. But I'm saying, in terms of space, as a shell, that'd be yeah, wonderful. No, it looked pretty good to me. Yeah. I like the look of it. Yeah. I'll just get rid of his bloody old scrapbooks. <laughs> And his uh, wardrobe full of uh, Dr. Pepper outfits. Yeah. Dr. Pepper? Sergeant Pepper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, are you a fan of Peter Sellers? Everyone isn't. I'm a big fan. You've yeah. got to be, haven't you? I mean, you don't meet people that go, uh, you know, no one can take or leave Peter Sellers, surely. Are you gonna well, I don't know. Most people who watch The Misfits, I imagine, have not seen two-way stretch, have they? No, but if they do, <laughs> they sort of go, I've wasted my life watching The Misfits. I should have watched this. Uh, no, I mean, I'd, I'd heard of this, but I'd never seen it before. I'd never Because I'd read... Um, I'd never heard of it. Uh, yeah. Roger Lewis's book, Life and Death of Peter Sellers, the, the Jeffrey Rush film. Um, that's a big, fat book, but I remember reading about Optimists of Nine Elms, and there were pictures of him in it, and I thought, that looks like real sentimental claptrap. Mm. <laughs> False nose. False nose. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I was pleased to finally get to see it, but I really didn't enjoy this. I mean, it, it was very much in keeping with my view on Peter Sellers. He was an incredible performer. You know, everyone knows this talent he had for transforming himself into totally different characters. Um, even though you can physically recognise him there, yeah. you don't recognise the No, seamless yeah. Yeah. performance. Yeah. You don't, yeah. You... yeah, however, that talent for my money was only really used properly twice. There really? are films I've not seen yet, so there might be some... Yeah, yeah. Arm Around Jack. Least... You seen that? They could be. Um, I have. I, I really don't like Arm Really? Like what yeah. about Long Arm of the Law? Wrong Arm no, of the Law. Right. No, that that's good. But it's yeah. not like this is a worthy sort of use mm. of his skill for me. Um, Two Way Stretch. Yeah, it's, it's okay. You know, really there's Doctor Strange Love. I really love. Yeah, and uh, being there is one of my favourite movies. Yeah, they're both. Being they're both. Yeah. Yeah. Tremendous and as a kid, films. I love Pink Panther. Now I think they're dreadful. Yeah, Dude, I still didn't get a great deal out of Pink Panther. Oh. There's another film from... There's um, a lot of people falling over. It's great. Battle That's of the it. Sexes I thought was really good as well. I've not seen that. I've not seen that. But, I mean, it's only as like good, I say, it's only as, good a... as two-way stretch in Rome, 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 Rome. <laughs> And I quite enjoyed the party as well. Oh, no. No, 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 no. Is that Birdie Num Num? Yeah. <laughs> no, I enjoyed this, though. Um, the Optimist. Did it bring a tear to your eye? Almost, man. Right, because we kind of described the plot there. It's just, it's, it's very sentimental. Yeah, it is. And I think yeah. I'll sum it up by the fact that the song he plays on his harmonium and throughout the film is just this little repeating refrain going, sometimes it wasn't half as bad as all that. <laughs> <laughs> and that's as much as you need to know about him. Like, we was poor, but we had a great time. Wasn't yeah. it, um, was it Lionel Bart who wrote the music in the song? Yes, it was. Yeah, yeah, I mean, there were some big names involved. Yes. George Martin. Yeah. George yeah. Martin does the yeah. orchestration. And weirdly... 
talking to the false nose, uh, the makeup was Stuart Freeborn, who did the he made Yoda. Oh wow! And he made he did all the eight makeup for two thousand and one. So he's like say a he only, right. no, he's still around. I think he's very old now. He's well in his nineties. Um, you might be able to uh, settle this. I've, it's something I've heard, but I've never been able to settle one or another. Is it true that two thousand and one was nominated? This, this is Arthur C. Clarke's theory. Yeah, right. nominated and Planet of the Apes won, and Arthur C. Clarke went, oh, the makeup for 2001 was so good they must have thought we used real apes. Yeah. Because they clearly aren't. But they're surely, very good. But, but surely you'd yeah. know. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's accurate, is it? It can't be true. But <laughs> no, also, that's Arthur C. Clarke. But then, also, like, uh, why but, I got but then the makeup is much... I, I love Planet of the Apes, but the makeup's yeah. much no, but better. It's a different thing, isn't it? With Planet of the Apes, it's very stylized, isn't it? Like I don't with Planet of the Apes. I mean, they're obviously like could be evolved before. apes, and it looks fantastic. Whereas with 2001, it's a man in, a, in an ape suit. I think. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think they're good, the ones in 2001. But I prefer the, the best thing about that for me is the the dancers or whatever they've got, the movements yeah. they do. But anyway, yeah, very good. Yeah. We're going off. It, whoever does the foley on there. <laughs> the kids were really good as well. I thought they were. Uh, you know, they never went on to do anything else, did they? They're it's not, not actors. Yeah. I, I did a bit of digging round. And um, yeah, the two kids, the two main kids, never uh, took their bras off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do do no other feature films ever. Obviously, there's another young actor in there who does go on to bigger and better things. Oh, oh Bella Chegger. becomes no. Lassie. <laughs> Cheggers. Cheggers. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. Keith I, saw, I didn't notice him, but I saw it on. You me. know, Keith Cheggers, whose career arc went on to Zeffirelli, I think. I think yeah. he might be in. Yeah, he did yeah. a few uh, DC feature films, and then obviously. A lot of television work and then ended up naked on <laughs> Channel 5. Yeah. So. Well, you say end up, that was about 15 years back. He's, he's blossomed since then. So, uh... <laughs> is he a chubby blonde boy in it? He is. The is, the, is the T-boy who It's interesting. With... He's like a sex symbol though, isn't he? He's sort of like well, a... Well, he's more sort of playful flirtation, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, because that scene, I was just thinking, this must be going somewhere and it didn't need to be there at all. Yeah, it's very I don't odd, think that told it? you anything no. about because it's the mother's factory, is it? Yeah. Where she's working. It's just but, this throwaway little yeah. nonsense scene, isn't it? Maybe if you watched it again, it's it's bridging two bits and they needed to show that time had passed. But it was like, what? This is an hour and 47 minutes long. Longer than that, I think it's an hour, you know. It's, mm. it's cracking on for two hours and you just think, it doesn't need to be that long. I made no. another discovery it, regarding child actors in the film, which uh, I thought was amazing. Um, the baby, the third child. Of the, oh yeah! Did you read Baby about James? No, I didn't. The the baby, uh, the the baby. celebrity baby. Well, yeah. Uh, Katiana Cass was the baby's name. It's Joan Collins' daughter. Oh, wow. Joan Collins' baby daughter plays the baby sister of uh, baby. What? I'm not using the baby today. Yeah, <laughs> and it'd be sold, isn't it? You sort of Joan Collins sort of going as soon as possible. Let's get this baby out earning. Wow. And it's quite a sad story when because uh, I was like I'd never heard of Katiana Cass and I was like did she go into any other films and she didn't. But um, she's had at least two major head traumas slash comas in her life. She's had like car crashes and serious falls where she just spent a great deal of adult life in hospital suffering from head traumas. So, uh, yeah, not a happy ending for uh, that baby. Sometimes it wasn't hard <laughs> as all that. Yeah, the parents of the kids are largely absent from most of the film. That's the sort of telling thing, that these kids have the run of the city. You know, they can disappear for hours at a time to hang out with a washed up right singer who lives in a shack, including a jaunt into the West End. Yes. Which is remarkable. They get on a. It's not just like they pop around his house and just find a corner. They get on a bus and disappear for a day. Um, That was quite interesting for me, uh, just in terms of local colour. They end up in St Anne's Churchyard in Soho, which is very close here. We've seen at least two deformed uh, pigeons in there that you guys vomited. Yeah, there's pigeons jumping around on the table with like a. 
what looks like a raspberry hanging off its foot. Ooh. I mean, if you see a pigeon with two feet up there, you know, it's a rarity. <laughs> Disgusting. But yeah, so you know, throughout the film, you've got these kids, you know, gallivanting round. But only when they disappear and it gets late at night do the parents seem to notice that they're gone for any stretch of time. And then the dad leaps into action, doesn't he? He's, uh, his quest yeah. begins. The dad's David Dacre, who's kind of a familiar face from Very TV. Very familiar, yeah. yeah. I couldn't place him for it. Fools and Horses, he turns out, William Sumner. Yeah, he's in, sure. yeah, yeah, he's always going to be in those things yeah. like Minder and. Um... Yeah, he's in the, did a few Minders, actually, yeah. yeah. Although I didn't think the parents were actually that terrible. It was just the idea is that they're at work. Yeah. Um, but they're not actually like violent particularly. I no, think no, the dad no. actually keeps his cool quite a bit. Mm. You know when they eventually get this dog from Battersea Dogs Home that there's going to be an issue. Because yeah. they're, they're not going to have space in the flats and they're going to have to feed it and all this kind of stuff. Well, there's, so, a, there's an odd bit where they go, relatively reasonable. they go to visit him at work to ask permission to get a dog but lose their nerve. So they sort of go to visit him at work. And it's made clear that they very rarely see their parents. So they go to work. He's like, what do you want? And I'm like, we'll talk then! And he's so aggressive for no reason. No, no, no. He's angry for a reason. Because didn't they break in and they're actually on the the shop floor by the the foundry? Yeah, it was quite a dangerous environment. Yeah, so I think he's angry with them that they've they've put themselves... If not the foundry, are hanging out at the docks with uh, a complete stranger. Life is fraught with danger. With with a false nose, yeah. (laughs) I thought um, it made excellent use of uh, locations as well. You, yeah, definitely. Cameras going to places that don't exist anymore. I mean, Nine Elms has been completely transformed. Yeah, yeah. and I even mean, stuff like uh, when they're in Hyde Park, which um, uh, I mean, I'm very familiar with when I worked in Kensington. Used to walk through there, thinking, "God, yeah, that's something from 40 yeah. years ago." And you can recognise the areas. And there's a bit when the kid running runs down the um, the subway to use the toilets. Yeah, and yeah, I mean, I've used that fairly recently, and obviously, it's not changed particularly in 40 <laughs> years. Yeah, before that point, I mean, this is, what, 73? Yeah. So shot in, say, 71, 72. There's not much earlier than that, is there, really, of, like, you know, films that are kind of heavy on location yeah. I think before then... Um, well, cameras British... wouldn't move, I suppose, would they? Yeah, well, was that, but I was, I was... Oh, I thought more in terms of British films weren't particularly concentrating on the grimy bits of uh, London. Yeah, they were probably true. trying to make yeah, it look yeah. quite a cosmopolitan place, so they'd be concentrating on the West End rather mm. than... Yeah, these uh, these ropey little bits of it. I thought it was interesting at the start. They're sort of playing on bomb sites and wastelands, and there's another thing where I was like, "This when is this set?" Because I hadn't really read a lot about it deliberately, so I'm going in a bit blind. I was like, "Is this set in sort of? It could have been the turn of the century, quite easy." And then suddenly a helicopter hoses the shot, <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, "Okay, this is uh, okay modern then. Good." And yeah, during the titles, I think even before the end of the the titles as they roll up, Sellers does this. What looks like it threatens to be a running joke when he's pushing his pram but trips himself. <laughs> and I'll so leave that didn't go further than the first five minutes. Uh, but I mean, notoriously, Sellers was someone who'd go for that. And then the next day, say, We're never going to do this again. Mm-hmm. His fortune teller had told him not to, uh, <laughs> to go for it. But while he was filming this, um, apparently he claimed he was possessed by the spirit of uh, Don Leno, old music hall entertainer. Oh, really? Oh, he lives on the. His blue plaque is about yeah. 100 yards from Lakeisha's house. Yeah. But I mean, with Sellers, this isn't like other actors said, Oh, I watched lots of films of him. Sellers obviously believed he genuinely was <laughs> possessed <laughs> by this guy. Lucky, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, people saying you had to talk to him at a certain point because once the, the. It was the teeth. Once the false uh, teeth went in, he was the character and be. wouldn't be talking to you as mm. Peter Sellers at all. So you just had to hope you'd get. That good a good performance from him, or just get the, the thing filmed. She couldn't you know? actually. Yeah, he was totally totally possessed, but um, in whatever way. <laughs> I found I stumbled across another uh, what I thought was an interesting Peter Sellers point. I think it's on IMDb. Um, they have him listed as dying in Lambeth. 
right. But then I did uh, a bit more investigation. Oh, I it was Switzerland or somewhere. I no, uh, Do- uh, he was staying at Dorchester yes. and yeah. took ill and died in Middlesex Hospital. And I was like, that's not Lambeth, is that? So why bring it up, Steve? Yeah, no, I just thought it was odd that uh, it just sort of... There was nearly a South London There was almost, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I was also well, thinking... We Peter Sellers, we mentioned him uh, on this week's show that's just been on. Ballum. Ballum, yeah. I've not had a chance to listen Gateway to it. Gateway to the South. To I have seen You're that, yes. Familiar on you, yeah. <laughs> just quickly going back to what you were saying a minute ago, Steve, about, you know, helicopters and bomb sites. It's, um, that's what, I guess, made um, the Thamesmead uh, estate so... Uh, so kind of not shocking, but do you know what I mean. It kind of it is futuristic, yeah. so yeah. so vivid, and the it? fact that it is it is brand new, brand newly built. Yeah, um, it it's would shiny. have been clean and yeah, stuff. You yeah, know, it's a, you know the seventies. Another thing is uh, you see a shot of the seventies, everything just looks filthy, doesn't it? You see like a shot of like uh, St Paul's or like the House yeah. of Parliament. It's just caked. In when dirt. you see central London, it's just sooty, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Quick note on casting, Steve. Yeah. Buster Keaton originally was, uh, they were keen to get him in oh, as okay. the main character. But they couldn't get insurance for him because he was so old at that point. But that was what oh, the, really? it's, it, because um, it was a novel originally. I can't, I've got the yeah. guy's name written down. Is it Anthony something? Simmons? Yes. He wrote um, the novel and then directed the film, didn't Optimists he? of Nine Elms. Wanted Keaton, but then I couldn't get him in short. Um, but yeah, it was going to be Optimists of Nine Elms. I think it was released as that in, in the UK. But um, they say Nine Elms had moved on so much since he'd written the book and was getting Keaton involved that they didn't think it was relevant to stick it in the title. Because mm. no one's heard of it either. Uh, but who else? John Mills was next in. <laughs> yeah, it broke his leg, didn't he, apparently, yeah. um, which is why he wasn't in it. And your old friend Danny Kay, Steve. Oh, right. Yeah. You're a big Danny Kay fan? My old mucker. Um, not a huge one, but, you know, he's well, a yeah. was, was this exciting for you as a fan of Music Hall? To... Um, I, I, it, it's the thing when you sort of go, when they go to the house and you see the playbills on the mm. wall, I was sort of like squinting a little trying to make out if it was... Uh, genuine things wherever they have put his character in but yeah no um, yeah it's interesting yeah going back to his false nose because yeah I mean well, I don't know if we've really mentioned this there's the teeth but yeah the, the look they've given him you can recognise it's Peter Sellers mm. but they've got a bit of makeup there weirdly he did look to me as this crapped out musical performer weirdly like Paul McCartney I thought <laughs> he's got he's got very doe eyes I think he's got doe eyes anyway but he's to rank up the sympathy, he's just got really wide eyes and his eyebrows go yeah, right down yeah, the no, side of his, uh, uh, right yeah. down the side of his face. Where I lived was with my dad and mum in municipal flat block 18A, Linear North. Clockwork Orange is notorious. Probably the best known of anything we're talking about today. I would say, uh, without doubt, the most um, famous film ever made in South London. Yeah. And the shot of uh, Alex and his troops walking by the water in Thamesmead is the, it's got the most it's famous image from South London in film, I would say. I thought that was true. And then I think it was someone mentioned it on our Twitter feed. Um, and I didn't realise this until someone mentioned it on our Twitter feed. The scene in The Italian Job where... Um, You're they, supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Crystal Palace. Oh really? Yeah, it's Crystal Palace uh, Stadium, and course, I would argue yeah. you're not supposed to. Blow, you're only supposed to. Blow, <laughs> you're not supposed to. Blow those off. <laughs> <laughs> it's so famous. I went wrong. You is is probably more famous than if only because Clockwork Orange went in so many years banned. <laughs> the, yeah, the idea. Well, of I it, guess it, I mean, yeah, maybe it depends how you look at it. And that's going to get referenced in much more. Yeah. There's more things. tributes to Michael Caine on TV yeah. than there are Malcolm McDowell. I had uh, a, a book. 
uh, when I was young, it was like a you know history of science fiction films. And the front cover image, if you think about science fiction films forever, into like a, the image on the front was Alex and Drews kicking a tramp to death in an alleyway <laughs> uh, in the subway, which isn't really particularly science fiction, is it? I mean, obviously, the film as a whole is uh, set in a dystopian future. I was going to shift a few copies of that book, though. Yeah, it's odd, but yeah, I've got it. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable scene. I mean, as a film, you know, as I say, it's the notoriety is the big thing, isn't it? The fact that it was well, almost yeah. immediately banned. Well, well we're not banned. Yeah, bands. sorry, withdrawn. Yeah, probably because uh... the, the deal was when this came out, it was very, very popular. But um, there was a lot of violence going on, and people would often say, "Oh, I, I watched that film. That's what made yeah. me do it." Although, in fairness, I think there are a lot of reports of people actually wearing the white boiler suits or things, or doing singing in the rain or something. I was going to say that I'm More sure there was there was a notorious incident of someone kicking uh, tramps. Yeah, um, while singing. Um, but yeah, it was, this is a weird thing. Kubrick had such influence that when he said to Warner Brothers, the studio and distributors, he said, I'm going to withdraw the copyright for England, or possibly the whole UK. Yeah. Um, and this happened. But for a, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s and wanting to watch this, you just couldn't. So, yeah, yeah. I didn't know the ins and outs of it. As far as I was concerned... <laughs> the been, out. The old, <laughs> as far as I was concerned, it was banned because it was so terrible. Yeah, so um, yeah. my memory of it was, um, what, about 1990? I'd have been 18... Uh, 18, 19, someone had a copy of it, um, a, a Dutch subtitle copy, and you watched right. it preparing yourself. And I think I actually had a dream the night before thinking, this is actually going to be like a snuff movie. I'm not <laughs> sure I'm ready for this. Yeah. And you watch it, and um, yeah, the violence is quite um, choreographed in it, isn't it? Yeah, mm. that fight scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. very much so. The, ga- the yeah. gang fight is hilarious, isn't mm. it? Oh it's, yeah, uh, no, there are stuff. Yeah, it's it's, it's, it's the Royal Rumble bit, essentially because I think there's a bit when a body just goes flying past and someone's hands go up. <laughs> yeah, to sort yeah. of yeah, it doesn't convince you for. There's a, second. a bit where someone just dives at someone head height, yeah. obviously off a springboard and goes straight through a window. It's it, it's yeah. hilarious. I mean, and it was it was beautiful because you've got the music playing over top of it, mm-hmm. and obviously very deliberate choice by Kubrick. I mean, you've got it, it starts off with an attempted rape by one gang, which is disturbed by another gang, and the attempted rape takes place on a stage with mm. uh, a woman being dragged around in a very sort of rhythmic manner. And it's clearly supposed to be a sort of a balletic yeah. uh, sort of dance. And eventually she... And even when she runs away, she manages to break away. And she runs away with her, her arms sort of draping behind her. And then the, the next sort of phase of the dance happens with these people uh, flying at each other. But it's quite funny because, as I say, when the dust settles... Not the dust settles, but the fight is settled... Um, and it's basically the, the losing gang on the floor getting hit by the other gang. Uh, and this is a guy flailing someone with a chain, isn't there? Mm. So it goes from this very sort of, as a balletic, stylized movement to just someone whacking someone with a chain. And he won't stop even when Alex gives the uh, the whistle that is the signal. That oh, yeah. Enough's enough. yeah. I think the idea is because there's two rapes in it, three rapes, isn't there? Do you know what I mean? That's, that's obviously going to be notorious. Isn't well, it? there should be more rapes because... First the brass. It's, no, it's, it's, it's not a critical opinion, but um, I, I didn't realise until reading around it. But uh, the scene where Alex uh, picks the two girls up yeah. at the record shop and brings them back to his house, and it's all consensual and great fun. In the book, uh, he rape, he drugs and rapes two ten-year-old girls. But obviously, oh, right. there's Kubrick no way really turn that on his head. Well, you uh, obviously there's no way to do that, is there? There's no way to show that on screen. Nah, you lose, so, so you lose the audience as well. Yeah. Just, or you, even you just to suggest it. Yeah, yeah you yeah. can't. You, you're not going to get sure. a release. You're not going to get any sort of. And you know, but so uh, I think it was quite clever for Kubrick then to sort of go. 
rather than laying on another you know level of degradation de- uh, depravity on on this character so sort i of go he's this as well you know he he, he is quite Playboy. charming yeah, yeah yeah exactly he's yeah, a charm handsome is charming thing, man isn't, isn't he? he yeah that's the thing that what's often said about this is as unpleasant as alex is all the other characters in it all, all the mm. non-drug characters are so kind of anesthetized either through i don't know if there's a suggestion that people are on drugs uh government kind of yeah it does seem like except or whether for... they're just so well, except for my favourite character. Yeah. His teacher. Uh, not oh, like Mr. probation officer. Mr. Deltoid. Mr. Deltoid. Yes. 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 <laughs> the bit where he slaps his balls yeah, is so uh, incredible. Yeah. And yeah. just the whole scene. The fact, it's such a remarkable scene. Uh, first of all, Alex walks past him in the corridor. And as, as, a, uh, you know, as an audience, the camera, it doesn't sort of like give a little twist. He, you catch a glimpse of him. And you're almost not sure, you're like Alex, you're not sure if you've seen it. He goes back and, he, and he's sitting on... Uh, his parents' bed waiting Actually, for him. Yeah. Is he going through his mum's drawers? Uh, uh, yeah. But he just and, and Alex doesn't question it, just sits on the bed next to him in his yeah. pants. Yeah. And it's just that a women when they both go and lay Yeah, back they the lie back and they're chatting and then he sort of like It was my second favourite ball whacking in the film. You know, he James goes Bond. a bit of the old Ludwig van and he whacks yeah. everybody uh, cane <laughs> in the uh, yeah. piece. Uh, so this was weird for me to watch this again because, like I said, the first time I saw it about twenty odd years ago, it was this dodgy uh, Dutch VHS copy, and I watched it quite a few times then because I suppose I can admit this now. So many people I knew were interested to watch it that I did copy off a few uh, a, f- uh, a few versions yeah, of it. Yeah, you would if you got access to that. So I admit this now. I dreaded to think of what you were going to say. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I did kick a tramp to death. Yeah, so, um, <laughs> I admit this now. <laughs> so it was weird for me to sit down and watch this uh, a couple of weeks back and think, wow, this is pristine, isn't it? Yeah. Because like, the best thing for me with this was the, the titles of it when it goes in the very vivid colours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Each yeah. of the captions come up uh, yeah. different. I don't think they're all primary colours, but that was really vivid. The sound yeah. was really clear. Um, yeah, with the Wendy Carlos um, yeah. opening music is just amazing isn't it it's one of the most distinct things about it yeah. mm. um, and I mean I have mentioned this on Midnight Video a few times Phil's a huge fan of the film generally and especially the soundtrack for me possibly because of the age I am this was made in the early 70s and he's trying to look as futuristic as possible yeah. Yeah. so it's using stuff from the very early 70s which to me was still around in around 1980 the early 80s yeah. so all people the were still listening to dictaphone tapes <laughs> Uh, oh god, this stuff like that. But yeah, the fabrics and stuff in use in yeah. it. Um, that horrible orange bed cover made up of all the little doily- yeah, doilies, yeah, yeah. stuff like that. I can imagine. I can remember things like that from the early eighties, still hanging around. Once they'd had a, a life and they smelt horrible. <laughs> <laughs> various uh, various fluids. Well, the opening over. shot, you know, as the camera pulls yeah, out, it's, it's just tremendous, uh, isn't it? Um, what? No, for me, I mean, it's a good shot. Yeah, um, but it's how cheap the Maloko bar looks. It really does look like a, an Andram play or a school thing because they've got those kind of mannequins. See, I didn't mind that because my thing was, uh, I, I take what you you mean about a lot of it, a lot of the the sort of uh, production design and pins say, absolutely textiles. to the early seventies. But, yeah. but also looking very sort of tired, even though it's supposed to look fresh and like the future, but. It's a dystopian future, isn't it? I think it should. It sort of plays into it. Even looking at it now, you go, this was a vision of the future. But it's clearly a future that's failed, isn't it? For, um, for, for a number of reasons, like socially and politically. This is not a good place, is it? So it should be sort of... It's not, but I don't think... This, I think we were probably meant to be quite impressed by the design in it. But that's what I mean. I but was, I, though. But, really? but also... Yeah, but I, I, I mean, think... I, I, it possibly doesn't have the same connotations. Yeah, no, of course. Though. And the thing is, it's not... 
I, you don't, I don't see it as a prediction. It's not like that like minority report. No, yeah, you watch it. I know it's a different era, but where you kind of go, you know, you're looking at things going, oh, mm. things might be like that. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's everything is over stylized, mm. isn't but it? But see, it's like nowadays, I mean, me and, me and uh, Steve went to see the remake of Total Recall last week, and it's kind of like they're not even bothering now. No. If you're going to do the future, you know it's going to not look anything like what you predict yeah. it will, so they pretty much just keep it. I just do been the style. better phones. I think that's been <laughs> the style since. Probably Alien came out. I mean, they just dressed in fairly normal 1979-ish oh, yeah. yeah. clothes. I mean, Alien's the extreme so it still looks, yeah. just sort of uh, They just look yeah. like people from 1979. Mm. But that means it doesn't look as dated for me, because it's not trying to do anything to... say the uh, fifth element is a bit of an exception. Well, that's, that's <laughs> going away yeah. So again, I mean, do you, do you actually enjoy this as a film? Yeah, I, I saw it, first of all, about five years ago. So I was in my mid-twenties, and I've been watching... Um, films aimed at adults since I was about 18 like I didn't really see when I was a kid I didn't see very much that was sophisticated mm. so when I, when I got into films I was of an age to appreciate them so most things that I've seen in my adult life I can sort of stand by my original opinion of but with this I absolutely hated it the first time I didn't <laughs> really get it I thought it was like I thought it was quite offensive I was like what is the message here like I just I didn't really want to <laughs> think that way but I was just like what is he trying to say you know yeah um and I just, you know, I, just, I didn't really like anything about it. Second time around, it just absolutely knocked my socks off for some reason. I mean, similar thing with 2001 Space Odyssey, probably for different reasons. I mean, part of that is the pacing. I st- tend to struggle with slowly paced films the first time around. So I always sort of, you know, I write a first view in his damage limitation. But, <laughs> you know, now 2001 is, would be certainly in my top 20 films of all time. And Clockwork Orange probably in the top, certainly top 100. And that sounds like a lot, but I mean, I've seen a fair few. But yeah, I just thought it was everything about it. I loved. I thought it looked first time. I had the kind of those wide lenses, you know, I was you know the look of it did nothing for me. But second time, I was just sort of staring at every frame, just absolutely. Uh, it was the thing. Kubrick got his reputation for being really precise with all the minutiae detail and doing forty takes or more than that. I like Kubrick a lot. I think he's a very good filmmaker, made very good films generally. This is my least favorite Kubrick film. Though, I really? Think. Yeah. I mean, for the reasons I've kind of gone in into already but it's it's specifically now it's because the message in his other films the message is usually doesn't have to be in your face it's usually you can pick it up fairly easily here it's so on the nose and I know Kubrick as the filmmaker he was would have been aware of this because the whole thing feels a bit like some morality play or a 19th century novel or something the way the characters speak it's specifically for me the bit after Alex has had this treatment and they have him on stage in the prison and he's you know, he can't put up any fight against this very camp actor, John Clive. It's when he's given him together. the beating the shit out of him and then uh, he bows to the audience. As yeah. really yeah. And then uh, what the topless woman comes out and Alex mm. can't do anything, you know, he, he can't perform. But um, you then actually get an Irish priest who stands up and tells you the message of the film. He's got no free will. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's just so on the nose. I you know, like I say, Kubrick must have done this intentionally, and the whole feel of it is like that with people, mm. almost like a Dickens novel, I suppose. Yeah, but I, yeah, that doesn't work for me at all. I think Kubrick had the most fun uh, putting together the look of the film. Certainly, I mean, in ter- as you say, in terms of the script and the, the the plot, I guess his argument would be: firstly, a lot of that is prescribed by what the novel is. Secondly, I think again, he would have had so much fun with the language of it. You know, working the bits of 
uh, slang into the script that yeah. he, the actual story itself I, I think he just had so much fun with the stuff around it that the actual mm. core story he just sort of let be a very sort of simple morality because apparently uh, there wasn't even a script for this they just had the book yeah he and directed say, it from the page didn't yeah, he? yeah so yeah I think it's a fairly faithful translation except for the bit we've mentioned with the uh, the two French girls. Connection was a similar thing where a different director obviously but where he they had this you know each yeah. night they were sort of like knocking pages out based on the uh Based on the book, just mm-hmm. directed it straight from the book. Or, think, well, obviously, it's like curb your enthusiasm, and it's just by the end of this scene we need to <laughs> yeah. get to here. Yeah, I think with the Godfather as well, the adaptation was very much just a chunk of book with a yeah. bit of direction. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, I don't know about that, Steve. One, we'll, we'll let our readers do some research now. <laughs> one, one bit that uh, I read about that is added to the film. Uh, was Alex's pet snake. Did you read about this? Oh, yes, because McDowell had a massive fear of them, so I think Kubrick put it in just <laughs> to... Uh... It's, and it's, it... it's not like it would improve his performance. No, it's, but it made me think of, you know, uh, the uh, bit from The Shining, where um, to, to make uh, Shelley oh. Duvall jump uh, when... Did you know this? When, yeah. when uh, Jack Nicholson is chopping the door down and she's jumping. She's jumping because behind her... Uh, Sandy Kubrick's letting off a shotgun. Oh wow! Rather, yeah, apparently, rather than rely on her performance, he te- he, he almost broke her as a person. He spent right. most of the film just terrorising, which mean, is why she looks terrorised in the film. I've heard that, but about The Exorcist, I think it was a priest who's um, Jason Miller, and that's meant to look up startled, right? And he wasn't doing it well enough, so um, apparently Friedkin had a, a handgun. Okay. But with Shelley Duvall in The Shining, I know he was just really relentless with her. He just he just pounded her every so day. So she'd just set, look at the end of her tether constantly. Yeah, and, he uh, just and he, and he was also constantly on it. every time they yeah. they cut. He'd just go over to her, bark at her. Yeah. But apparently for that particular scene, he wasn't getting the performance. They just got a gun. Yeah, it's just... funny you should say that, right? Um, Straw Dogs came out around it was a couple of years earlier, and that's uh, a film that was that actually was banned, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, was well, I don't think it was. I mean, I think it was right on. Um, the... It was one of these other ones that has got a reputation for being banned, even that wasn't. Again, there's <laughs> the rape. It looks like she's enjoying it. And yeah, had a lot of problems with that. It may have been trimmed back. But uh, do you know what Peckinpah's direction to Susan George was? He'd have been too drunk to do anything. No, he, he said to uh, they're just about to do this, and he goes, uh, "Wait till your parents see this." <laughs> He's horrible. Yeah, I love I love yeah, Peckinpah. Yeah. He's one of my favourites. Yeah. But he's just a br- absolute mess yeah. of a have, human have being. Have you seen there's a Peter O'Toole movie called The Stunt Man? Because that pretty I much haven't. happens in it. But yeah, that's well worth watching. Yeah, I'll check it out. Yeah. In terms of um, another Cuba direction, the, the the scene with Singing in the Rain. Apparently, that was a McDowell improvisation. Yeah, yeah. They, agrees, they've been yeah. filming that for ages, and didn't, it didn't have any pizzazz to it. Yeah. I think they, you know, famously Kubrick made people go through the take endlessly. And once that was added, apparently Kubrick was absolutely delighted and bought the rights up immediately. <laughs> apparently, Gene Kelly was furious. <laughs> you would be, wouldn't you? Because uh, you'd imagine, yes. yeah, it's a real sort of uh, appropriation, isn't it? Like. Did you know, you, yeah. I was going to say once you see that scene, yeah, every time you, you hear the song in that now, context rather yeah. than yeah, I was I'd been singing it around the house yesterday. Yeah, and then, kicking the <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and uh, my mum was like, caught. I was just like, I'm singing in the rain. I was like, Mum, yeah. don't, don't. It's uh, not. This is not. That's part of a terrible rape, Mum. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you think of this, Steve? I mean, does this? I I loved it. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. I loved, uh, as I say, from the opening shot, I really enjoyed. I'm usually to the uh, closing shots, Steve. <laughs> but I'm usually uh, quite annoyed with showy directors, you know, when, when they do make a big thing of... Uh, Look at me, I've got a camera in Yeah, my hands. exactly, yeah, this is what uh, I'm doing with this. And, and, like, speeded up shots and slowed down shots and things like that. But 
every time something like that happened, I was mm. like, this is great. I thought the, the, the sort of, as I say, the sex scene with him and the two girls was absolutely brilliant. But with yeah. the William Tell overture. Yeah. So no brass, but also, no <laughs> but also <laughs> I just love the fact the camera's still and they're moving to the background in front of me. It's just great, yeah. really, really yeah. good. I, mean, I tend to feel that he's the greatest director that ever lived. It's, yeah, he, he, he. And if I'm kind of coming as objectively as possible, which I know is not possible, but, you know, 2001, I think, is kind of the finest piece of cinema. Even though it's not my favourite film. Yeah, I mean, there's always room to read stuff in that probably wasn't there. But you know, uh, I remember but someone. That's the re- of it, maybe. Yeah, someone in a piece I read once, and I did think this was quite a clever thing, but I'm, I'm, I doubt it was intentional. You know, the very last shot of 2001 is the, the Star Child. Spoilers for everyone. <laughs> 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 the, the We've got our feet in space. <laughs> We've baby, got Jim Hawkins uh, on the last shot of a film. <laughs> this is an achievement. <laughs> This is not your normal midnight video. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the last shot of 2001 is this baby uh, this baby turning towards the camera and staring and then it goes black. And the opening of Clockwork Orange is McDowell's eyes as it yeah. pulls back. And it, there's almost like a suggestion this might be what's happening on Earth while all this stuff's going on in space. Oh, wow. I like this more now. Yeah. There's the line <laughs> right. when the tramp's going, there's no order on Earth. They send yeah. men up in tin cans. Possibly misquoting David Bowie lyrics there. Right. So. Speaking of uh, reading too much into Kubrick films... <laughs> I got quite obsessed with uh, Clockwork Orange for a little bit when I first re-watched it a few months ago and I was just watching stacks on YouTube there's so much great stuff there's like McDowell being interviewed on American television loads of stuff um, like um, Anthony Burgess sitting there smoking being interviewed uh, <laughs> saying about his wife being raped uh, but yeah there's a documentary um, I can't remember it's called something like Stanley Kubrick's Secrets or something like that Chapter 1 How Stanley Kubrick Faked the Moon Landings yeah, mostly it's the shining. It's going this obviously means this. It's a, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. All A11, Apollo 11. <laughs> it's, all the evidence is there. Yeah, I've not seen that. That was a deliberate spoof, that wasn't it? But, um, no, I don't think so. Was it? Oh, I thought so. Because Aunt Kubrick's wife, it's after Kubrick died, isn't his wife Christiane and uh, one of his daughters in it? And or maybe Jan Harlan as well. Who was no, well, this one, it was quite a low budget one where it's just a guy talking over. Oh, uh, right, no. I think but it's well worth I've, watching just yeah. because they, he talks a lot about the production um, the techniques of yeah. uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey. He's talking about, you know, how like the things they did with like sets. And he said, this is what they did with the moon landing also, mm. which is not accurate. I mean, just to say, we don't, we don't agree with moon conspiracies. And uh, Kubrick, uh, with his, uh, you know, putting actors through through the mill. Yeah. Um, I mean, you, when I was watching it, I did, the bit where he, where uh, McDowell was held under the water and almost drowned, yeah. that just seems to go on for a ridiculous amount of time. I don't know. How did they do that, Jim? They did just hold him there. And apparently it was really freezing cold as well. And... Um... Yeah, they just kept going. Of all yeah, you are. Well, well, he also uh, there's also the blinding. Well, yeah. yeah, that's the famous one. <laughs> yeah, his but eyes even that you can open. see it, and like his eyes are clamped open. Mm. And you're thinking yeah. they just they've clamped his eyes open here. Yeah. And the thing is, the guy who's dropping the thing into it is a doctor. Yeah. They they put a doctor as close to him as possible to make sure that nothing happened to him, Was and his... they still managed to scratch his cornea. Mm. Well, this is interesting because it's McDowell's. I saw him being interviewed on a thing from about the mid-90s when he said, oh, yeah, what happened? The guy they'd hired is meant to just put drops in his eyes to moisturise them. Yeah. But um, Kubrick said, oh, you've got a line like just, good morning, Alex. And he was so intent on getting this right that he forgot to moisturise the eyes. (laughs) What I then read later, and you'd thought McDowell would get this right given it happened to him, was that because it was like 40 takes or something, eventually McDowell just freaked out ripped off this straight jacket. It wasn't obviously bound up, but um, yeah. was desperate to get the clamps off and he scratched Just, the car oh himself. God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, Only got himself knows? to blame, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should talk about 
the many South London scenes. Yeah, well. Yeah, because, well, you know, obviously, we're here talking about Thamesmead, and it is uh, the scene in the We've lake. already mentioned Nine Elms, Steve, so get your, um, <laughs> get your Wandsworth stuff in. Yeah, uh, well, wh- I-, I liked it, uh, you know, Wandsworth 300 pass with uh, the tramp attack. And uh, <laughs> let's, let's call it that. Um, um, but also, sounds um, like a giant, giant tramps invaded the yeah. city. The, <laughs> not the exterior of the prison, but the interior of the prison is uh, Woolwich Barracks. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and possibly my favourite one, um, the uh, presentation uh, of Alex is uh, Nettlefold Hall in West Norwood Library. Really? Yeah. Which the is the old uh, one? Or it would be the old one. It'd be the it? old one. Which yeah. is which? It's back at now, sadly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Knights Hill. Yeah. yeah. Just a quick uh, note on the uh, you know the second uh, crime. You can, not second crime, but the second. Uh, is this with the cat lady? Yeah, with the cat lady. Yeah, um, who died recently? The actress, yeah. Miriam. Yeah, two thousand eleven. Yeah, I think yeah. last year. Yeah. Cancer. Doing the aerobics. You little bastard. <laughs> She's brilliant, isn't she? Yes. He uh, so he, he kills her with. Uh, a sculpture of a penis, and uh, Alexander Walker around this documentary I was watching described it as a ridiculous weapon, <laughs> <laughs> which is how I would describe Alexander Walker. <laughs> so the final shot, Jim, you uh, you told us about the final shot of uh, of uh, two thousand one Space yeah. Odyssey. So you can mute it for about forty five seconds if you like, listeners. <laughs> final shot is uh, tell us what tell us, Jim. Well, the final shot is uh, Alex in hospital. Um, the government sort of. Um, oh, don't worry, you, you sort of wanted to get spoiling, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Alex in hospital. There's some debate about whether he's cured or not, but then the end is a weird hallucination he's having, where he's seemingly yeah. having sex with a naked woman in a horse racing paddock. I think. <laughs> it's, I think they, it's, it's not the, wrestling, naked wrestling in the snow, Steve. Uh, yeah, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's it, a it, a the snow, people around it? him look like they're either at a horse racing. Uh, they're at Ascot or a wedding. They're in kind of more, <laughs> gentlemen in morning suits. And things yeah, and top it's, hats. well, it's supposed to be. I think it's supposed to be uh, people at uh, a performance of Beethoven. It's people yes. dressed up for the the proms essentially. Yeah. Or, I always uh, just tie that in throughout it. You do have whenever Alex listens to Beethoven before the treatment. He has these little reveries when he goes yeah. off and sees himself as a vampire and his clips yeah. from. Yeah. Uh, Caveman movies. Oh, the bit where he's uh, the centurion whipping uh, whipping Jesus. Jesus, Yeah, really well done as well. So, what does it mean, then, Jim? I've no idea. I imagine it's Steve (laughs) Um, that he the the cure hasn't taken. That he has, you know, whatever you do, man will go back to its original setting. Thamesmead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, Thamesmead. In this is Alex's location. Then, I mean, this is after uh, not optimists of nine elms where it's meant to be a new exciting place and here is it meant to be representing yeah it's interesting because they're, they're, they're similar times and you've got this this place that is built and you've got the optimism of uh, mm. the optimists you've got the hope for the future you've got the idea that this is going to be a place where new lives will be formed and shaped and then you've got uh cube return again trust me this is going to go all wrong, and yeah, yeah. It's um, I, I know what you mean about the sort of message of it in terms of uh, it being very on the nose, but um, but the thing is, I was going to say earlier actually, 
it's such an odd message. Yeah. It's such an unconventional... I mean, it's the message you don't get in every other film. Yeah. The, kind of the fact that it is um, on the nose. And the book, apparently. I mean, famously, there's the last chapter's missing, because Kubrick yeah, was directed they read, from the American they edition. In, yeah, exactly. It's published in America with yeah. the chapter. He just missing. naturally gives up his criminal ways. Mm. He just matures and, you know, gets yeah, on and starts becomes, a family. And yeah, a he becomes that, a family member. Yeah, yeah. The, either the testosterone or the rebellion or whatever, and he sort of dies, dies out or is subdued as you get older. What happened to Harold Shipman then? <laughs> Kubrick never made that film. Yeah, but I was reading online, there's a, like um, a lot of debate and confusion about the title, but I thought it was pretty straightforward. Isn't it, it is straightforward, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I was like, yeah. isn't that one of the best things about it? Yeah. Straight away, you read, you hear that phrase, mm. and you get an image, and you get an idea, and then you watch the film and go, that keys in exactly to what yeah. you know it should be about. I mean, in, in the book, they it's expressly the book that the writer is. That's it's and I yeah. Think people are annoyed that it's not there. And Kubrick, no, um, it's not fine, Kubrick. Burgess claimed he got it. It was a sort of Cockney phrase. Queer is a clockwork orange. Yeah, yeah. And there seems yeah. to be, uh, but there seems to be no record of that. No. Um, is it worth talking about the bands we've got names from? That's entirely unrelated to that. Craftwork mm. Orange, you know, in the, <laughs> the Mighty Bush. Well, they get the, um, Heaven Seventeen get name checked in the film, don't they? Yeah. Because there's a few more from the book. Uh, Maloko. Obviously, yeah. Well, I directed a video for a band called Milk Plus, of course. And Campag Velocet, does anyone remember? Is it just me? No, nah. yeah. they Campag Velocet recorded songs uh, using the slang from Work Orange. So there's like whole songs done, it's great though, really, really good. They didn't amount to much. I think I was the only person that bought the album, but uh, it's great. Did you spot? Um, I only spotted this on the third viewing in the shop he goes to. What's it called? Oh, yeah, oh, I don't know, but yeah, there's Chelsea this... in the title. Of the shop, but the 2001 soundtrack yeah. is on the, oh, really? on the rack. Yeah, very yeah. prominent. Yeah, yeah, right in the middle yeah. as well. I'm like, how did I miss that the first few times? <laughs> like, moon. Yeah. Look, you're not too old to be taking over me knee, young man. Do you hear me? Oh, bloody Thamesmead can hear you. Yeah, well. So we've had Thamesmead as basically anywhere, Thamesmead as Utopia, Thamesmead as Dystopia, and finally it's just basically Thamesmead, isn't it? Yeah. Thamesmead as Thames, but even then, mid, wow. in the Thamesmead in the mid nineties, this is like the thing. end of Mike Yarwood's show. He used to say, "This is me." <laughs> but also, impressions. I think uh, in the film we're going to be talking about now, beautiful thing from nineteen ninety six, you see both sort of ends uh, of the spectrum in terms of Thamesmead. Thamesmead as the worst place on earth to live, and then Thamesmead as a place. Too impossibly nice to live. It's, it, mm. you know I mean, it's just like two levels of impossibility. But um, you know, that's it. Uh, necessary for the the drama of the piece. Yeah, and you know, as we say, they do refer to it as Thamesmead. Um, yep. Shooters Hill was mentioned. Um, and... Yeah, there's a radio at the beginning, isn't there? That mm. references a lot of local areas and makes it very clear uh, where we are. So yeah, it's about two uh, teenage boys who, who fall in love. Exactly. Yeah. But, of course, they're in Thamesmead, where men don't kiss men. And if they do, they're probably going to... The guy's literally fearful for his life, isn't he? He thinks he's... Yeah, he's got a kind of abusive uh, father, isn't he? Yeah, abusive father and brother, yeah. Mm. But I think Thamesmead here is meant to be... uh, Yeah, it's meant to be populated with very traditional values. Yeah. I don't know about that, because... I mean, you could do that anywhere, though, couldn't you? Do you know what I mean? I don't think it's uh, it's like I mean obviously you're not saying that it's suggesting Thamesmead is uh, a homophobic place, no, but, but do you know what I mean? It like there is a kind of you know the girl next door is quite eccentric, isn't well, she? What what struck me about this is just doing a bit again a bit of research around it. A lot of the people from this went on to appear in soap operas, 
Yeah. And the Which whole, enough to the whole feel of this is a soap opera. Mm-hmm. No one in this film is happier. When they're happy, they're at their happiest. When they're sad, they're at their saddest. There's no modulation of emotion, is there? Yeah. If they're happy, there's one scene where they're uh, just on the balcony having a drink. And um, they're so happy and settled. And within three minutes after a throwaway comment, the mum's just slapping her son in the face repeatedly <laughs> and just swearing it. And you're like, you were fine a minute ago. There's no-. And it is just this very, I don't know, I found it as a film very clumsy. I didn't enjoy it at all. Yeah, the, the uh, snappy dialogue is uh, difficult, isn't it? When it's, it's snappy, good. it's never snappier, is it? And when it's mm. when it's it's just there, there's no. Sort it's of it's like brands. I said about Misfits. It's you can you could basically people might, might as well be holding scripts in their hands. Yeah, absolutely. It just feels very overwritten. Yeah, yeah. which is odd because say like um, you well, know though. Clockwork Orange. Obviously, there's not really much of a comparison to be made. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's very much a film that, where the dialogue is Queer not as a at Clockwork all. Orange means something else. <laughs> <laughs> the dialogue is. Um, not at all naturalistic, is it? But no, it doesn't, no. you know. And that's, that's a huge problem because I think the idea here was to set it somewhere that looked absolutely gritty and realistic. Mm. And yet, the characters here all let each other finish each other's sentences. They're all insulting each other, then have a very witty riposte to come mm. back. And you just think, well, is this meant to be realistic? Or yeah. is it, it, there's no verity. Do these people with the like actual... each other or do they hate each other? There's no way of telling. There's no consistency mm. to performance to emotion yeah. to character I mean what I'll say in fairness is Jonathan Harvey wrote this was probably quite young at the time I think he's in his mid-twenties okay there's no so, need to make a film of it then is there no I mean it was a stage <laughs> it was a stage it was, to begin yeah, with yeah. and that may have worked there but um and yeah I think even this was meant to be originally for TV but had a good reception yeah apparently, so it was released that's what I yeah. cinematically and I saw it at the cinema when it came out how much did you pay to see this uh, you saw the cinema when you came out. When I came out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's a Jim Hall gag, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, oh, I don't know, but probably yeah, it was a West End cinema. But yeah, it was uh, my my girlfriend at the time wanted to see it, so I went, yeah, okay. And I remember um, leaving that, think probably being pleased with myself that I'd been as liberal as to watch this, <laughs> this thing about poor people coming mm. out. I, and yeah, when I watched it the other day, I just thought this is dreadful. Terrible, and yeah, isn't I was it? just thinking all the time of. EastEnders and Grange Hill these yeah. things which were trying to be realistic and even though this I mean the big Grange Hill famous children's soap setting a modern comprehensive school but the thing everyone picks up on is there's no swearing so it instantly loses <laughs> any kind of realism here there's a lot of swearing I'd say an unnecessary amount yeah. but it still doesn't add any realism no. to it mm-hmm. you know and it's almost like you can tell they were said you can say the C word twice but you can have eight uh, you'll beep it out anyway you know, the eight <laughs> yeah <laughs> We'll leave a beep at oh, I'll put it as a bumper at the start of the show. Yeah. Like, we'll, we'll decide. <laughs> I was so shocked when I read that it was 1996. I watched it, then checked. It feels about 1991, doesn't it? No, 86. Yeah, it, it is. It feels so dated. It I mean, it opens, so... the thing is, it opens up in the opening shot. You've got kids running around in the Arsenal shirt with the lightning strikes right, on yeah, it. Yeah, it's so true, immediately. Yeah, yeah. But it did, the stock. Like, even yeah. the film didn't look right. Exactly. It just seemed And much... they put on, like, these 70s yellow titles. I mean, obviously, you don't think it's the 70s. But no, it is, but... um And, like, it also, for what falls out, it says Channel 4 Films, didn't it, rather yeah. than Film 4? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I presume this was the last days of that, was it? Mm. Or was there a crossover? Because film Probably four, would have been it? near the end, yeah. Because I think after this, you had East is East, probably a couple of years later. I think East is East was 2000. Really? So, yeah, yeah so... It just that was didn't. a big one for them. So I, I, like, I remember, it's one of those things where with the other things we watched with the other well, it was a 70s film. What? That came out as a You spoke so fast then. Okay. Yes. 
I'll slow it down on the other thing. With the exception of Misfits, the other two. One more time, one more time. With the exception of Misfits. Okay. The other two films we've watched were in the 70s, so obviously they came out before I was born. But this is something. That feels like it came out before you were born. Yeah, it just feels like, a, you know, I should be old enough to, you know, in 1996, I was 21. This film came out after Pulp Fiction. So legal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even then. But um, I have no recollection. It just doesn't feel like It doesn't time. do itself any favours by putting in something that's so clearly an interest of the writer rather than a character. And going, oh, this teenage girl, she really likes Mama Cass. She's yeah. obsessed with her. <laughs> I've got to say, no. that's... 15, 16 years later, that's all I can remember from watching it. Oh, yeah, there's the black girl who likes Mama Cass, isn't it? But I can't remember any of the rest. African mum, Jamaican daughter, Steve. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, it doesn't. uh, I I thought. uh, It's not that big of a deal, but. The scene where uh, she's on a trip. Yes. Which is terrible. (laughs) The young people um, talk to you. The the bit where um, uh, she's like wandering across a road and the guy's shouting after her. He's like, Leah, Leah, and she doesn't, and then he sort of like has a moment of revelation, goes, Mama Cass. And she turns <laughs> around, she has this mo- she understands completely what he's talking about, and she's like, yeah, I'll go with you, because you yeah. think like, That's just how uh, drugs work. Terrible, isn't it? Awful. I mean, you look at the, the pedigree of the people involved in this, Mira Sale turns up. Very briefly. Uh, very I thought she was quite amusing in her yeah, scene. I thought yeah, it was quite good. a strong start. It's a shame that she's not in the rest of it, because she, like, she could have been quite good. But everyone else is... Uh, just people from EastEnders, isn't it? it yeah, like. I mean, the main actress here, is it Linda Henry? Yeah, Who's, she's been yeah. in EastEnders twice. Did you know this? It's two different characters. Yeah, it's two different characters. She turned up for a little bit, and I'm, I don't know how common this is in soap operas, but I thought it was hilarious. I love the idea. And i would never, have you heard of E20 before? Was it personal? EastEnders spin off. No. Wow. Is it East, exactly, I'd never heard of it. Wow. Because the girl, uh, the, the Leah character, Tamika Tamika Empson, debuted, apparently. E20 is an EastEnders spin-off show um, and the writers are all 17 to 22. It's like a young writers program at the BBC. My heart's sinking. <laughs> and it's like it a, it's a special yeah. about How the... How can we make EastEnders worse? About, young, about just the young characters from EastEnders. So it's like some sort of teen drama yeah. EastEnders. I'd never heard the of it. The clue is in the fact they only use the first letter. So that's what kids do. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. It's supposed, I think it's supposed to be like 90210. But it's Ooh. E20. Um but yeah, all the writers are seventeen twenty-two, and she's a character that's debuted in that and has now been promoted to the main show because uh, she's such a hit. I imagine she's left Avengers Academy. <laughs> she's graduated. Yeah, East Enders assembled. No? You're a Hoovian, Jim. <laughs> Hoover, Ho- Hooser. I would a say Hooser. someone who yeah. likes Doctor Who. Well, now you've come out as a Buffy fan. I'm uh, entirely comfortable <laughs> with this. There's a lot coming out today, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, Hattie McDonald directed this film. Mm-hmm. And she directed the only episode of Adults Who I've ever watched all the way through. Right. Blink. Yeah. Which was alright, wasn't it? I suppose. Uh, it's okay. I mean, I, I don't want to go on and on about it because it, it's got nothing to do with Thames Mead. I don't want to be positive about the film because it's not great, right? right? It's, terrible it's not very good. Uh, but I did think that. Don't you think it might help teenage boys who want to come out? Nope. Well, that, yeah, there's, I mean, there's a part of it, it that you're seeing something well, that you yes. don't see. Like, well, you know, kind of, you don't, there are, there are so few um, gay films, are there? Gay interest. Well, I just think in terms <laughs> of, uh, as, a, as you say, in terms of like setting up, uh, you know, uh, a social sphere for people to come out, you've got this place where it's made very clear that this guy's in fear of his life for coming out. Then, so you go, okay, that's probably a bit extreme. But then at the end, 
that you know he loses all fear and all inhibition, and the final shot oh, of dancing. Yeah. Oh, that was well, so bad. So it's not a handbook for coming out. Is starts it? dancing. In well, no, no, not everyone. A couple of the, people. And know, well, some people a couple are looking people on the Yeah, but they, rather than walking on, they just stand there staring. Everyone just circles around them, and then um, and then, and this is another thing that talks. You know, in terms of the characters and the inconsistencies. The first time the mother meets the next door neighbour, um, the, the girl says to her, "All right, whatever her name is, Sandra, is it?" Yeah, All right, yeah, Sandra. She goes, she goes, shut up, slag. <laughs> and just goes in the house. And you're like, yeah. oh, so they despise each other. But then it's they totally sort done. of... It's yeah. just terrible. And it's just like, they hate each other. And then at the end, they sort of... And then um, there's a scene where she says something on towards about it. So she just uh, uh, coshes her yeah. at a party and just basically threatens to kill her. And then finally they're dancing. You're like, why? There's no, there's no mm. arc here. There's no character yeah, development no. that leads to this point. It's just he wants to, the final scene to be a big dance. All right, fine. But that's not... And this is the thing. It's not even she, like Kubrickian where it's a fantasy world and presented as such. It's No, this is definitely what happens, isn't it? It's just bullshit. <laughs> Sorry, that was... Wow. I'm sorry, swear. Terrible film. No, I'd agree with that. After setting up, oh, it's terrible coming out in this particular environment because everyone's so, yeah. uh, no one's very understanding, everyone's quite ignorant and fearful. And it just relies on people suddenly becoming quite accepting on a big scale. I'd say the end of Optimists of Nine Elms is the same. The dad suddenly listens to a poorly presented argument from Peter Sellers and says, oh, and looks confused at him. Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's talking sense. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> what I was going to say though about. You know, not it's not even a positive really, but it kind of sets it up as Thames Mean is not that bad. I mean, you sound it like you know, wherever, wherever you set a film about a, a working class teenage kid who wants to come out or any class, you know, it's not going to be particularly positive, is it? No. But Thames Mean is not that, that bad of a place. But at the end of the day, they do want to get out of it and yeah. move to Bermondsey, yeah, which yeah. is which I thought was quite good. Yeah. You know, do you know what I mean? That's and that's probably what it is, isn't it? Like you don't want to live this ten miles away from central London. Like go and live somewhere a bit better and a bit more central. You know. As I can understand, for for this, in terms of drama, if you are doing uh, a film about uh, a teenager who's struggling with his sexual identity and fearful about the response, you set up opposition. You set up the fact that other characters aren't necessarily going to appeal. But then at the end, just to swing it, just for the sake of a shot, that isn't it. even a good shot. No, it's um. Uh, and that first thing you you can tell in his head and in the director's head, they've obviously gone. This is good, and I reckon when this was at screenings, people were losing it over this. When they go, oh, the dance at the end—it's a magical moment. No, yeah, I don't know. Man. No, well, the thing they, is, what did they like then? No, because it's... what it is, right? When you, Jim, you've been involved in reviewing films, yeah. When it comes to British films, um, British reviewers, many anyway, just show a complete—they uh, just throw away their kind of scruples, don't they? Yeah. They just completely go in and just make out things are good that are terrible. You'd like to say that with Wild Bill. You'd go type in Wild Bill review, it'd be like getting four stars. It's, it's rubbish. Well, unless, for... unless they feel it's wasted lottery money. <laughs> yeah. Six lives of the Tato men. Yeah, instance. well, there's sometimes where you yeah. just you can't deny it, can you? But these yeah. people can't sit there enjoying these terrible British films. I'm not writing off all British films. I'm talking about the bad ones. But people just go into these reviews and act as if it's like some kind of national sport. They not need sport, some kind of national um, team. National treasure. Yeah, like if you, I was on um, a bit of pride. A bit of pride was all I ask. But I was on the rolling with the nines IMDb page, right? Where I used to like message all the like uh, go on the message board all the time. And like I was saying, this is the worst film I've ever seen. There's people going, oh, you need to support British films. Why? Why? If yeah. it's terrible, I like good films, not yeah. British ones. Is this the worst film you've ever seen? No, Rolling with the Nines. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah, really, really bad. 
this is a pretty dreadful film, I thought. There was nothing. I mean, the only thing I took out of it that was any interest to me. Uh, did you recognise an ex-neighbour that sings the karaoke? Um, oh, hold on. Oh, yeah, Anna Karen from uh, On the Buses. So, Ollie yeah. from On the Buses. Yeah. And her husband in the film is played by a real-life husband. I was like, that's interesting. <laughs> but that's not enough, is it? You can't make your no. films on that basis, can you? I've got to say, the one thing I did enjoy about this was, uh, and I looked at your notes and said, uh, Paul Lebowski or something, isn't it? Um, I'm assuming it's the same guy. Um, the kid's mother's current boyfriend is this kind of laid-back... Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Who spends a lot of... The, he's not meant to be realistic at all, is he? No, I it's hope terrible, not. isn't it? Oh, yeah. But yeah, he's... He's, he's meant a sense to be 27. To, which yeah. Well, that's the other thing as well. When uh, he said... Uh, he's talking to the boy and he's like, uh, you know, I'm 27. He's about 40, doesn't he? Yeah. Although, Jim, actually, uh, the note that you uh, read over my shoulder, you know, nosy, <laughs> uh, was from Misfits. There's a scene really? where uh, Nathan uh, does a kind of uh, Jesus Quintana. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, he licks the... He right. the uh, it's quite actually quite funny, isn't it? I thought, no, it's, no, no, the punchline's <laughs> quite good. He kind of, he's like there and he kind of does a little dance with the uh, bowling ball, kisses it, and oh, then I he see. goes to do it and he doesn't get a strike. He goes straight in the gutter. I thought it was kind of amusing. That's why I wrote it down, but Big Lebowski homage. What was interesting about watching all the films together was, you know, the people just walking out in and out of each other's film sets. That, like, you're watching The Misfits, and there's that bit from The Clocks of Orange. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was a scene in Misfits, um, last scene of season one, where um, Nathan is up on the roof, and it's the scene where you find out he's, you know, he dies, and then yeah. it turns out he's immortal. But he's on the roof doing a kind of Clockwork Orange speech, isn't he? He's saying, like, you know, what would you rather, that we were... Yeah. Um, that we were just kind of machines, you know, that yeah. we, or we had a bit of personality and maybe we'd do a bit of badness. It's kind of, I don't know if it was a direct reference. It must be, actually, now that you think of it, now you say it. But like, he's me, doing it, yeah. like, in the yards square. away from where Alex and his droogs, you know, walked, you know, walked had a little fight yeah. by the water. Yeah. Could be reading more into it than... Uh, yeah, you might be giving Misfits uh, too more, much credit, yes. as in any sort of... Uh... <laughs> were there any films you considered for this? No, well, I, that, that was the shortest. Uh, I gen generally my approach is just do everything. Right. So, <laughs> as soon as you find four. Yeah. No. No. I just is a, if there had been ten, would would be here for another two hours, Jim. <laughs> we'll put links to some bonus content on the website southlondonhardcore.com. Um, well worth watching the uh, McDowell and uh, Burgess interviews, if nothing else. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at SLHC Podcast. Steve's on there at Vince Wales. I'm on there at Jack McEnroy. Jim. At midnight video, although someone else might read it, Bill Wolf. <laughs> That's no, <fine>. no relation. <laughs> um, yeah, put it into iTunes, isn't it, uh, Jim? How would you sell people uh, midnight video? Uh, given we're not doing it at the moment, <laughs> probably. I mean, you got a, uh, you got, We've got uh, a back an archive. We've yeah. got a back Char a uh, Yeah, uh, <laughs> me, me, and Phil tend to cover films which we think at least sound interesting. I think there've been a few criticisms from you, in fact, Jack. Yeah. All the criticisms saying most exactly. of the films we cover are actually terrible. Yeah, I, I, I'm surprised we, we you never... tend to like them so much. Because um, I was led to we, believe we, by we, Steve that you didn't like films. Right, Steve said that Jim said that film is dead as an art form, and it's it's I'm severely lacking. Away. <laughs> it's severely lacking as an art form. Uh, but then he says every week, Jim's like, "Yeah, I really enjoyed this well, I, pile I, of tripe." <laughs> <laughs> the stuff we cover on there, yeah, it tends to be stuff that sounds interesting at least. So a lot of the time, it might be genre stuff like horror or thrillers or stuff. But it's it's if someone with a low budget has um, done something a little bit unusual with it, you know. No, I think most of the stuff, more than half of the films I've enjoyed, and Phil a lot more. I think 
I feel bad for Phil. I think there are only two or three films he's not liked, and he's had loads of um, <laughs> loads of uh, feedback telling him he got it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> he's moved to France as a result. Stop enjoying <laughs> films. <laughs> Sometimes it wasn't half as bad as all that. Sometimes don't know exactly what we had, but there were. Oh, uh-huh.